record. This podcast won't let me record. It keeps shutting off. It's really weird. Anyway, I'm asking Ben right now for a New Year's legal AF. Um, if Biden should call in ICC inspectors. Cited briefing schedule ordered by the Supreme Court. And the MAGA extremist fraud George Santos not going to be having a great 2023, but Santos may just claim 2023 is actually 28. Um, here's the headline. Federal prosecutors open investigation into representative-elect George Santos over a congressional campaign. Expect us to believe it. He's under criminal investigation from essentially everyone now, federal, <laughs> state, and local prosecutors. And a complete and utter fraud, utterly humiliating. Did you mention the Brazilian authorities are also looking for him for fraud? Is he Brazilian? Then, uh-huh. that is the state of MAGA Republicans today. Sadly, what can we expect in twenty twenty three? We've got Special Counsel Jack Smith's criminal investigation of Trump. We've got New York Attorney General Letitia James civil fraud lawsuit. Against Trump seeking at least $250 million, which would shut down the Trump organization from doing business in New York. That trial is set to start in October of 2023. The Manhattan DA's criminal investigation of Donald Trump himself is now ongoing after the Trump organization was convicted of 17 felony counts. Fulton County District Attorney Bonnie Willis's criminal investigation of 2020 election interference in Georgia heats up, and there will be a report and indictments there. E. Jean Carroll's civil rape and defamation case against Donald Trump will go to trial in 2023. So, Popak, 2022 was a year where the wheels of justice turned in the right direction. 2023, I believe, will be the year of accountability. I'm calling it now. We're only a few hours away from the New Year's here in the United States. If you are watching this internationally and it's already 23, Happy New Year's to you. Happy New Year's Eve to those watching it and counting down the final hours until the new year. I am so glad we are spending this together with all the legal A efforts. Popak, how are you? I'm doing great. Happy New Year to you and everybody that follows us and subscribes. And and let me let me tell you, only half jokingly, I thought you and I and Legal AF would be out of business by twenty twenty three. When we first started this show, when we talked about what are we going to talk about and the content that we're going to talk about, I thought, all right, Look, let's try it. Let's see how much is out there at the intersection of law and politics for you and I to talk about. Maybe we'll run this for a couple of years. Boy, was I wrong. 
2023 is shaping up to be double or triple the amount of things that are monumental that you and I have to break down and cover along with Karen Friedman and Niffalo. And um, yeah, the show's not going anywhere because the, um, the goal of the show to explain and break it down in layman's terms, what's happening at the important intersection of law and politics is not going anywhere. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to 2023 with you, my, my co-anchor and host. Well, and here's the thing, too, for everybody watching this. When Popak and I started this back in 2020, and we would do these live uh, broadcasts or live streams, we would have maybe 50 people, 25 people at first, 50 people. And a lot of them would be friends and family watching. Um, but the overall point of, of, of now seeing that we have, you know, thousands and thousands of people watching this is the fact that anybody watching this at home, anybody watching this on your phone, wherever you're watching this right now, you have the ability to make a difference. And you did make a difference because none of this is possible without you. None of this is possible without the legal AF community. We built this together and you are the most important part of helping us to build this and you are a major part of that. So I just want to say thank you to everybody watching this at home. We are so thankful for you, for all of you, wherever you're watching this. All right, let's get into it. Donald Trump's full tax returns are released. Popak, <laughs> we had the two executive summaries that were released that we talked about in last week's edition, but now we have the full tax returns, the actual raw data where we could see things like charitable, you know, ch claims of monies that went to charity. So when Donald Trump says in 2020 that he donated his salary to charity, we see a big donut hole. We see zero in 2020. So we absolutely know that he's lying there. I mean, when Donald Trump claims in the various press conferences that he gave and um, leading up to the 2020 election, he said he paid millions of dollars in, in taxes. Um, well, not in the United States of America. He didn't. Um, if you look at all of those five years and you kind of net it out, he actually received money from the government, a $3 million tax refund. He'd pay like $0 in 2020 and received a refund. In other years, he got he paid $750 in taxes. He never paid more than 4% uh, of his income in taxes, but that was ultimately you know, uh, eliminated by the fact that he got a $5 million refund. But then I say, well, you know, at least he wasn't paying that in America because we see all of these foreign entanglements. I mean, he literally had a Chinese bank account. We see that. He claimed that he shut that down in 2015 and that he was thinking about doing business in 2013. Those were his public statements that he made. But he paid $200,000 in taxes to the Chinese government more money than he paid to the United States government. In that year, he paid $750 to the U.S. government. I think it was 2017 when he paid $200,000 to the Chinese government. Um, and so you start seeing all of these things. And when you actually look at the raw data itself, I mean, shows a lot of criminality. I mean, Popak, he took a deduction from the payoff to Stormy Daniels um, that was routed through Michael Cohen. He, he took that as a deduction. So a lot, you know, look, obviously it shows that he's a liar. Obviously it shows that he's a grifter. Obviously it shows these foreign conflicts. But what do you think the Manhattan District Attorney is thinking right now? Well, let's go. Yeah, I'm going to back my way into that. Um, 
for that really good explanation. Let's talk about what the criminality could be within the tax returns. First of all, he used and abused a technique of setting up his companies into sole proprietorships and using what's called Schedule C in his 1040 tax return. He had 20, he had a total of 65 sole proprietorships, which basically, I'll be honest with you, are used for very, usually for very small companies, not ones that have 1,000 page returns, tax returns. The reason he did that is that there is a liberal um, use in the Schedule C of expenses against what's supposed to be income and revenue for that particular business that is listed as a sole proprietorship. Except in 26 of Donald Trump's uh, sole proprietorships over that five-year period through which we got our hands on the tax returns, each one of those 26 showed zero, back to your donut, zero in income, but huge expenses, meaning he could take his expenses into the tens of millions of dollars and offset that against income, dividends, trust account, trust, uh, trust income, in other parts of his return. So when you net all of that out, those 26 companies with zero in revenue and huge expenses and tax losses, he took, like a magician, a criminal magician, he took $46 million worth of adjusted uh, gross income, $46 million, and he made it a refund of $2.1 million. So he eliminated completely all of his income, $46 million. And he ended up with a refund of 2.1 collectively for those five years. Now, um, his total income was 152 million for those five years, but his adjusted gross income, after all those expenses were applied, was was negative 53 million. He made over <laughs> he made over 150 million dollars disappear by using these Schedule Cs. That is a problem. He had a problem like this apparently in 1984 where a, an, an administrative law judge in the tax area in New York State also pointed out you can't have all these businesses with zero income and all these expenses and offset. So he's on notice that this is an improper methodology. Mazers, the now long discredited uh, accounting firm, auditing firm for Donald Trump for 13 years, who under penalty of being criminally prosecuted itself by the Manhattan DA's office and looked at by the Attorney General of New York, disclaimed all of their work done for Donald Trump and basically told the world, you can't rely on a thing that we previously certified because we got that information from Donald Trump and the Trump Organization and we find it now inherently unreliable. It is Mazers who is at the bottom of every tax return. Um, in fact, there's no signatures for Donald Trump or Melania. It's just Mazers with a tax preparer. Then you've got that that whole category of bogus charitable deductions, potentially bogus charitable deductions, that aren't backed by any um, uh, chits or invoices or receipts. And those are in the tens and uh, tens of billions of dollars. Um, you also have the impact on his tax returns of his own tax policy. The big tax change in 2017 um, led to him being able to avoid the alternate alternate minimum tax, the AMT, which saved him again millions of dollars, which is exactly what the House Ways and Means Committee was very concerned about, that the president, who alone can impact his own tax bill, passes laws that benefit him. Um, and so we saw that in the tax returns. 
the criminality is going to go to following the money now that the IRS, the U.S. Attorney's offices and prosecutors now have access to these returns and they see these banker bank accounts in China and Azerbaijan and in other places and try to figure out if there's any money laundering going on here. Speaking of money laundering, we focused, and I did this in my hot take on the matter, we focused on the $200,000 in Chinese taxes he paid the same year that he and Melania paid $750 total to the, uh, to the U.S. But there's also this $15 million transaction with a high-ranking elite of the, of, uh, and, and connected to the Chinese government who got a below-market penthouse in, the, in America sold to him by Donald Trump. Donald Trump immediately took the entire sale price, $15 million, out of the bank account. So in effect, you've got China giving Donald Trump $15 million by way of a penthouse transaction that gets reported on his tax returns. All of these things are going to be supremely important to prosecutors, some of which has been known to them because the New York Times got a bunch of these tax returns through Mary Trump back in 2020, but many of them did not. And now you're going to see Letitia James, um, the Internal Revenue Service, a new and now emboldened by you know Merrick Garland and by Joe Biden, looking at all of these things for future prosecution. I think Alvin Bragg is going to have a good 2023. I don't know if he planned it this way, but I'll give him credit for it. Because lots of people were very angry at Alvin Bragg when he let the grand jury investigating Donald Trump's financial crimes laugh. Including Karen, including Karen, our co-worker. Now, he tries the case against the Trump organization as the test run because a lot of the same witnesses are going to be in the bigger trial against Trump directly if and when that occurs. For example, the Mazur's accountant was a key witness who was called by Trump's lawyers and they tried to cross-examine him and Trump's lawyers did a really horrible job on the cross-exam. So much so that when jurors spoke to the media, or at least one juror who spoke to the media afterwards, they said they hated Trump's lawyers, hated them. <laughs> and they said things too, like Trump's lawyers would do things, like make fun of the guy's voice. He had a high-pitched voice, the accountant. And then in the closing arguments, he would do impressions, Trump's lawyer would do impressions of the accountant. So this is Susan Necklace and her and her colleague? It was her colleague who wow. did it. Um, who did like the piss it off the of jury. And the jurors and the jurors said, why would you one, you put on a horrible case, but why would you be so cruel and call into question the accountant's manhood? Like what in the world were you doing? But just going back to Alvin Bragg here, a lot of those witnesses are also going to be witnesses if and when Donald Trump is indicted himself. So Alvin Bragg's got the W, the wind behind his back now after the Trump organization pled uh, or, or was found guilty, rather, of these 17 felony counts. And now when he tries the case, or will, I think will file against Donald Trump directly for a number of those things that you just mentioned, they kind of know the strategy. Also, it's removed this whole phony Teflon Don narrative, oh, right, yeah. that Trump, he, he, he'll always going to win, he's always going to get away with it. No. Not only did they lose, but the jury was like 
guilty, like record time for you, all of those 17 counts. It was like, tick, 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 tick. Yes, four hours. They, Cy Vance, and, and I, I agree with you about Alvin. I was less strong. You know, Karen was in that office and, and uh, uh, actually thought about running for that office. So she has very well considered strong opinions about that. But in retrospect, if he's a master chess player, which Alvin may be, he got the easy, the easier win with the cooperation of Alan Weisselberg, the longtime CFO, a win that, as you said, led to 17 felony convictions, ones that will now be cited forevermore in court cases. And we'll talk about how how things like Jan 6 and uh, criminal convictions in one court end up being cited in another to support positions or analysis, which is really, really important in a way that I haven't, I hadn't even contemplated as it related to Jan 6. But we'll leave that. We'll put a pin in that for a moment. For Alvin, he's now 17-0, if you will, against Donald Trump. He knows how to uh, fight the lawyers, and he knows um, their weaknesses, which are, as you described them, not getting, not not being seen as credible or authentic in front of a jury, or having them see you the same as they see your clients. I mean, if you've got a sleazy client that's known for being a misogynist, saying really terrible things out loud, you shouldn't repeat that in doing, you know, at least bring your own credibility to, to help your client prevail. That doesn't seem to have happened here, the way you described it. So, but Alvin's got that 17-0 record now, and now with his own people, because look, it's, it's hard. He inherited a case and a prosecution and investigation from his predecessor, Cy Vance. Cy Vance is still around. I mean, the guy's only in his 60s. He's practicing law. You know, he's been kind of public about, I would have prosecuted. I thought the next step when I left office was that Alvin was going to prosecute, uh, given, given all the evidence I'd given him. However, he's his own person. He has to make his own decision. But, but let's give that credit. I mean, he is his own person. He did evaluate in his own way with his own experiences as a prosecutor, a lifelong prosecutor, federal and state, the evidence. And he didn't see the case at that moment. And he was getting pressured by the special prosecutors that, that Cy Vance had hired and brought in. That, I don't want to say they weren't, they weren't Alvin's people, but they weren't Alvin's people. And they were pushing. Look. If the only thing that you've been doing for the last two years, having left private practice, is working on this one case, of course you want that one case to be prosecuted. And Alvin had a little bit more of a, uh, a sense of perspective, having been the new person into the job. And, you know, it was going to live or die to buck stop with him. Now, as you said, 2023, if, if this is his strategy, it could turn out to be brilliant. Because, as you said, he put all of the witnesses through their papers already. He sees how they're going to perform now with his own people. And he's brought in his own group of special prosecutors who know about Trump and the Trump organization to help him reevaluate things like Stormy Daniels. Is that an election, uh, election fraud violation or election contribution violation and other things within it? So I don't think anybody should be, who listens to the show should be surprised if in 2023, Alvin Bragg in the Manhattan DA's office bring a new round of criminal prosecution against Donald Trump specifically, and these tax returns are only going to help him. Popak, you put a pin in it. I'm taking the pin out of it. Let's go <laughs> and see how the January 6th committee's reports are now being cited, and not just the reports, but how the deposition transcripts that they released and the way they've been kind of drip, 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 dripping these deposition transcripts has had an incredible impact as well. 
I just think also reputationally in allowing the public to soar through who are the bad actors, who are the criminal actors, who are the phonies, and who are the people who acted reasonably around that time period. Very few heroes other than the law enforcement, the Capitol Police officers, the people who stood against it. You know, I, I don't want to fully say that were there really heroes in the White House on that day. I think there were people who acted um, as they Pat, should have acted. And Pat Cipollone, yeah, Pat Cipollone is becoming the John Dean of, of this investigation. You know, the, the more the transcripts come out through his own and through um, Cassie Hutchinson, the more Pat Cipollone looked like he was the adult. Uh, that stopped a lot. You think what Trump did was crazy? It was going to be even crazier uh, if Pat Cipollone hadn't been in his position. So let's first talk about the federal judge in Washington, D.C., though, who cited the January 6th final report in a recent court order this past week. The judge is John Bates, federal judge, district court judge, appointed by George W. Bush, an insurrectionist named Alex Shepard, tried to file a motion to dismiss, and a change of venue motion, and also wanted to assert a defense called a public authority defense, which basically is kind of like entrapment in a way, a public authority defense, although it's not fully well-defined because very rarely do you have a situation where someone can try to argue that a president told them to lead an insurrection. But the claim of public authority defense is that you believe that you were following lawful orders, that the orders that were given appeared to be lawful, and that you were just acting pursuant to those orders. Um, so here, the federal judge had to analyze whether or not this insurrectionist could assert that defense here, because the insurrectionist said, Donald Trump told me to do it. Donald Trump said that we should, you know, storm or you know, fight like hell. And so I was following his orders on that day. And what uh, Judge John Bates said is, look, let's look at the January 6th committee report. Um, and also let's use our common sense. And when you put those things together, it's apparent that Donald Trump was actually not giving a lawful order when he was saying things like fight like hell and we're going to the Capitol together and I'll be there with you and all of those things that a person who interpreted that would not believe they were following a lawful order, but that they would be obstructing an official proceeding. And so to have yet another federal judge, I mean, we've seen statements by Judge Carter, federal judge in California, Judge Amit Mehta, Judge Sullivan, Judge Beryl Howell. It kind of adds to this list of uh, Judge Amy Berman Jackson. Um, it adds to the list of these judges um, who are very, very, very critical, to say the least, of Donald Trump's conduct. But specifically here, Trump's really running out of any potential judge who may be an ally in Washington, D.C., where the indictments against Trump will be brought. They're not being brought. We've talked about this in other podcasts. Judge Eileen Cannon should never have asserted jurisdiction. The fact that there was a search warrant executed at Mar-a-Lago was the reason why there was a magistrate judge in the Southern District of Florida that had to sign the warrant. But that's why Florida was involved. But any indictment on both Donald Trump's theft of government records, as well as Donald Trump's conduct relating to the insurrection and, and election interference, those will all be in D.C. 
and even the even the Republican judges, all of them, whether we're talking about, you know, even a Trump appointee like a Judge Nichols, um, maybe Judge Nichols would be the most sympathetic, but he's not sympathetic to the insurrection. Nichols has made a, I think, a terrible ruling claiming that obstruction of justice, that charge can't be used except in very narrowly circumstances, which we've talked about on prior podcasts, could have very big implications. But on the other charges, like a seditious conspiracy charge, on an insurrection charge, on a trespass charge, on a conspiracy charge, there's not a single federal judge in Washington, D.C., who I think would let Donald Trump off easy here. So I wanted to talk about that piece, about what Judge John Bates did, citing the January 6th report. Popak, I know you wanted to talk about the deposition transcripts and their implications. Let me toss it to you on that. Yeah. Yeah, well, let me let me uh, pick up on a couple of threads that you laid out there. First of all, while we talk a lot about Trump having reshaped or attempted to reshape the federal judiciary, he wasn't that successful. I mean, there's, there's courts of appeals that were already conservative, like the 5th, the 11th, that he continued in that direction. Um, but Biden has done a much better job at appointing at the state, at the um, trial level, the federal trial level, and at the federal appeal level. The only place that Donald Trump really, and I'm not saying, I'm not minimizing it, it's important, but the place where he really reshaped is that he got three picks. He was able to get three picks on the on the Supreme Court. In D.C., he's done very little to be able to ideologically shift the judges in his favor. These are not, by and large, in fact, none of them, MAGA Republicans that he appointed. Carl Nichols is not a MAGA Republican. We may not agree with his decision, but I knew his, I know him by reputation and where he worked at Williams and Connolly before he became uh, a judge. He is, he is a Republican, but he's not ideologically MAGA. And there aren't really aren't any in the DC circuit or in the DC circuit court of appeals that fit that bill. So even though you'll hit a Trump appointment, maybe one, Maybe one on the Court of Appeals, uh, uh, the guy that uh, Katzis that had been in the Trump administration uh, in the White House Counsel's office, who seems to uh, view his role as being MAGA. But other than that, so you're right. When the prosecutions finally happen, they'll happen in Washington with a very unsympathetic uh, bench. One that, as you've noted, is already starting to form opinions based on the 400 cases of the Jan 6 that are going that are being filtered through their courtrooms, Beryl Howell can't help but have predispositions now about Trump, some of which we've seen in her rulings against Rudy Giuliani and others, when she's not also running the grand jury process and hearing all the secret testimony about attorney-client communications that you and I don't even know about. So the good part about the insurrections being put through our justice system is it's having an impact on the judges who are asked to handle. One of them is going to get picked to be the Donald Trump judge for one or more prosecutions coming out of the four or five grand juries that Jack Smith is running in Washington. Now, the part that I wanted to talk about is that, and we see it in the ruling by Judge Bates against Alexander Shepard, which is interesting for a couple of reasons. One, Judge Bates did not buy the argument that obstruction of justice can't be used against the Jan 6 defendant because unless you find evidence that he literally walked in and tore up the electoral vote. 
judges like Judge Bates are doing their own analysis, and once again, like every other judge in the D.C. Circuit, has ruled that obstruction of, the obstruction of official proceeding is an appropriate count to go against the Jan. 6 defendants because their object of their of their acts of their obstruction obstructionist acts was to stop the electoral count, which they did for a period of time, and to stop the certification. So he that's the first thing he dispatched. Then on the uh, on the uh, fight does fight like hell. You got to go down and march to the Capitol. Was that the license? The, the, the legitimacy, the license by a government official to a person like Alexander Shepard and the others to say, hey, I'm allowed, I got a, I got a free pass today. I'm allowed to go storm the Capitol and confront Capitol Police um, and interfere with the election process because my president, who's a government official, told me to. And the judge, after going through the analysis, said, look, I, I get your argument. It's sometimes called entrapment by estoppel, meaning the government is stopped from changing their position telling you at one point you can do something and then taking away that privilege or right and then leave you in the middle of being criminally prosecuted. And the examples that they used are like, for instance, when there was the, um, the sit-in, the Occupy Wall Street in New York, um, which people forget, where for like the whole summer, a park across from Wall Street was occupied by people objecting to you know, financial services at Wall Street. Mayor Bloomberg gave out an edict, which is cited in this court's opinion, that said, as long as they're peaceful protesters, we're going to let them express themselves. And people said, based on that, I stayed in the park. So when they were criminally prosecuted, some of them for staying too long, they pointed to Bloomberg's uh, comment and said, isn't that an expressed or implicit um, permission for me to do it? I was told if I'm peaceful, I can stay, and now I'm being arrested. So that's where it really comes up. But Donald Trump saying we're going to fight like hell, go walk on the Capitol, is not the equivalent of, here, you have the permission today only. I'm the president. Burst through the doors, confront the police, be violent about it, and try to stop the electoral vote. And, and for that, Judge Bates was not buying that that defense applies. What I liked about it is in the, the footnote 7 that you just talked about, and maybe we'll be able to put it up for the show. In footnote 7, um, this is where Jan 6 comes into the real world in a courtroom. Um, he said that the... Um, President Trump, the person, Mr. Uh, uh, Shepard, that you're relying on for the instruction that you said you were given to allow you to march to the Capitol and burst through the doors and, and attack the Capitol, that guy, that guy, uh, according to Jan 6, committed four crimes. And one of the crimes was fomenting the violence that happened by knowing people were armed and dangerous in the crowd and then turning them and pointing them to Capitol, another branch of government, and telling them to go basically attack and yelling out the words attack, if you will. He says, that guy, what you say is your permission, is actually a crime that was being committed by the President of the United States, so says the Jan 6 Committee. So here's where I had a moment, like my own personal rev re uh, revelation. I think I underestimated, and I talked to you about this pre-show, I underestimated the impact that the, um, not, not so much the criminal referrals, I thought that was important. Um, I may have referred to it occasionally at ceremonial, but because I'm less worried about the criminal referrals in terms of the Department of Justice, but the criminal referrals and the release of the 1,000 transcripts of witness testimony, which is being done about 100 a day until they get to the full 1,000 before Jan 3, I underestimated the impact that that would have both in the courtrooms around America, like we just saw, 
National Guardsmen 
to overthrow and declare himself the emperor. I mean, you know, it's like, yes, Pence did the right thing. Um, but you're supposed to do the right thing. You're supposed to follow the law. And we don't just expect our leaders to do base level things. We expect and hope that our leaders are going to fight for us, move democracy forward. That's why it's a very, very, very dark chapter in our nation's history, the darkest, perhaps, or one let, of the darkest. I let me make one, two, more, two more observations. And it's going to take a while for all of this to filter through. 1,000 transcripts, you got to figure about 10 hours per, if not more. You're talking about 10,000 hours or more of testimony. You know, even if we just, even if we speed it up to two times and listen to it really fast and read it really fast, it's going to take a while for you and I and others to kind of figure it all out. But here's two little nuggets that I thought were very interesting that I hadn't heard before. I want to see if you heard it. First of all, we, I, I did a hot take, and you and I have talked about the struggle between the Department of Justice and the Jan 6 Committee all along, Jan 6 Committee holding tight onto their transcripts and their witness testimony. I thought at the time it was only because they wanted it to be really, really impactful and not share with the Department of Justice because they hadn't yet made their own conclusions. But that's not it. Apparently, on, and for a number of witnesses, the Jan 6 committee agreed not to make a Department of Justice referral or send the transcript right to the Department of Justice in return for the witness testifying in front of the Jan 6 committee, knowing that at the end they would. But they made promises in order to get certain people to testify, and I'm not sure which ones they are yet, but this came out already in reporting, that they made promises that don't worry. If you talk to us right now, under oath or otherwise, we will not immediately turn the transcript over to the Department of Justice, you know, like directly. And so they got a number of people to testify based on that promise, and then they felt like they had a, they were bound by that promise, and they didn't turn it over to the Department of Justice. So that was very interesting. And also, blasts from the past, Dan Quayle, of all things, former vice president under, under George W. Bush, making not one but a series of phone calls to Mike Pence and others guiding them on what to do in this moment. First of all, I didn't even know Dan Quayle was still around, let alone that he's respected in Republican circles pre-Trump, right? This is when Republicans were a real party. And you got, you got Dan Quayle guiding Mike Pence about what he should or shouldn't do. Fascinating. People from history coming coming back, um, I, I, and I'm sure we're going to see more of that as we get through 10,000 hours of testimony. We'll keep reading it here, and we'll keep sharing it with all the legal efforts and Midas Mighty out there. I want to talk about the Supreme Court's shadow docket uh, used to block uh, President Biden from implementing his own immigration policy and basically forcing Biden to continue enforcing uh, Title 42 expulsion of asylum seekers here in the United States of America, uh, expelling these asylum seekers back to places where they will be tortured or killed. To be very clear, Title 42 is actually not an immigration law, right? Title 42 is a health law. It involves powers given to the Surgeon General and the CDC to stop the transmission of communicable diseases that was invoked by the Trump administration as part of a xenophobic uh, immigration policy because we have Title VIII to deal with deportation, but that has a process where you still have to allow asylum seekers to go through and make their petition for asylum, but by claiming a health emergency and invoking Title 42, 
you can avoid that from happening. Now, Title 42 also only deals with certain countries and certain groups and where it could be expelled. It's very, very, very uh, flawed. Um, and, and But nonetheless, Biden was criticized for using it um, because to all of a sudden stop using something that was evoked by the Trump administration could cause a great degree of chaos. But finally, in April, Biden's like, look, I want to go back to Title VIII deportation. We want to go back to have our own policy. If just saying we're not going to use Title 42 doesn't mean we're not going to enforce a border policy. I'm the commander in chief. The justifications for Title 42 regarding the pandemic no longer hold. So I'm going to pursue my own policy. Then uh, he was basically sued or these Republican states intervened. The case was then labeled Arizona versus Mayorkas. Um, and the Republican states led by Arizona and, and, and a bunch of other Republican states said, no, you have to keep enforcing Title 42. <laughs> Title 42 is essentially an executive order, right, by this, you know, by the CDC and by the Trump administration. And Biden's like, I'm going to do my own policy. And so this was litigated before the Washington, D.C. federal court before Judge Sullivan. It was then litigated uh, later on in front of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, both saying Biden's, it's Biden's policy. Like, like, but, and, and the states, you shouldn't even have the ability to intervene. You don't have jurisdiction to even intervene here. Then it went up to the United States Supreme Court through an emergency petition filed by the states. Um, you had uh, the Chief Judge Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, granted a temporary um, stay for briefing to take place. And then in a five to four decision, the shadow docket, the Supreme Court, not with oral argument, basically said, look, we're going to intervene. We don't care what the district court says. We don't care what the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals says. We are going to block Biden from implementing his own immigration policy until we have oral argument, which we're going to set for February. So until February and we hear the argument, we are stopping Biden from not utilizing Title 42 anymore. And the Supreme Court tries to be cute by half in their order and said, we're not telling him that he can't do the immigration policy. He just simply can't not use Title 42 anymore, which is constraining him. If you're forcing him to use Title 42, you're constraining his immigration policy. Now, there may be differences of opinion. There may be differences of views about should he use Title 42? Should he use Title 8? He's the commander in chief, though. And so for the judiciary to use their shadow docket in this way, to me, is incredibly problematic. And Popeye, it's also incredibly hypocritical because in all the other areas where the executive has actually attempted to invoke their executive authority, where Biden said, look, because of the COVID pandemic, when the COVID pandemic was raging, here's my view about evictions. I want to stop evictions right now. What did the Supreme Court basically say? And what did all the right wing courts say? They basically said, you can't use COVID and health policy as a pretext to reach into these areas of eviction. Same thing that we're seeing with what right-wing Supreme Courts are doing, and this is going to work its way up to the Supreme Court on student loans. You know, the Biden administration said, look, because of the global pandemic, this is an emergency under the, you know, under the 2003 HEROES Act. Therefore, um, we're going to
going to utilize our policy. The Department of Education is going to forgive loans because we are in an emergency situation. And they're right-wing courts. And I think the Supreme Court ultimately, unfortunately, may agree with these right-wing courts. Or, you know, say, you don't have an authority. That it violates the Administrative Procedures Act. And you can't do that. Meanwhile, this archaic law from like almost 100 years ago, Title 42, is now being thrust and forced upon a commander-in-chief to engage in a policy that the commander-in-chief says, no, we, we, we want asylum seekers to be able to pursue asylum, and I want to pursue my own border policy. I'll make this one point and then toss it to you, though, Popak here, which is I think it is important that we have comprehensive immigration reform here. Um, I don't think you can just basically say we need totally open borders. I, I don't agree with that. I, I don't think that. However, there has to be compassion. There has to be a reflection that we in the United States of America, when people are legitimately seeking asylum, to send people back to get killed or tortured is not what our country is about. I think it's important to reflect that we are a country of immigrants and that all of our stories, all of our histories, the people who are so out against immigrants in the most xenophobic ways, mostly all of them have come from immigrants. They're one or two generations, you know, or two generations removed from that. So we need a comprehensive immigration policy, which is what Democrats and Biden and people always want to do. And we could achieve that, but for the fact, but for the fact that MAGA Republicans like to do the performative things where they kidnap people and human traffic them and 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 send them and ship them to you know the vice president's house and you know and and engage in those xenophobic gestures and performative gestures like let's build the wall okay well someone could dig under the wall they could climb the wall they could walk through the wall you know they want the performative BS so that they could uh, let people hate and let let people blame others for their problems rather than solve problems and I would like a comprehensive policy that's compassionate that's respectful and that does recognize we do need borders here in the United States of America, but reflects that we are a country of immigrants. Um, so anyway, I'm sharing a little bit of my politics there, but I, I want to toss it to you briefly there, Popak. What do you think? All right, immigration policy is personal to me. I lived in Miami for 20 years. I have plenty of friends that were both legal and illegally in this country. Um, we need, as you, I'll pick up where you left off, we need a comprehensive, humane Immigration policy, unfortunately, it has eluded administration after administration, both Republican and Democrat, whether we have the House and the Senate or we don't. Um, sometimes there's political will for this. Usually there is not on the Republican side. Um, it's personal to me. My great-grandfather came here in 1900 <clears throat> through the then-existing immigration policy through Ellis Island. My grandfather came here in 1908 through, through Ellis Island. I have loved ones that won the green card lottery, um, which is one aspect of a humane policy if it's properly applied. And there's no greater United States citizen or patriot than that person who came through the, the green card lottery. Title 42 is controversial. It's even controversial within the Biden administration, to be perfectly frank. They were fighting for everything you laid out about the commander-in-chief and Joe Biden on one hand, <clears throat> but they weren't fighting that hard on the other hand because of the amount, the sheer volume of people who are yearning to breathe free and enter this country, which I completely 
completely insufferable and intolerable. And that's who's affected by it. Pardon me. <clears throat> the one thing about Title 42 that people need to understand, it was passed by Trump as a public health issue to use COVID policy to make people remain in place while they applied for asylum. Think about that. Most people that are applying for asylum, political or otherwise, are doing it because their life is in jeopardy because of the political circumstance or where they where they are in the socioeconomic group of those countries that I just outlined. We used to let them in, stay at a detention center or stay in America safely while they applied for asylum. If they got asylum, they stayed. If they didn't get asylum, then they were returned to their home country, but the benefit of the doubt was given to them. Under the Trump era policy, which frankly Biden continued to use, he, he could have gotten, he could have challenged it earlier, but he didn't. More than 2 million asylum seekers stayed in their countries rather than come through to the United States during this time period, both under Biden and under Trump. Just to show you the sheer volume of people that are impacted by Title 42, 2 million remained in place. Why I say that Biden sort of was a little bit playing both sides is because even though they challenged the, um, the decision to, to eliminate Title 42, they didn't also move to the Supreme Court to get an injunction in their favor so that they, can, they could continue to uh, drop it and bring all these people in. Frankly, I'm not sure Mayorkas and by the Biden administration is completely ready for 2 million or 1 million people to, to be housed, protected, and all on this side of the border while they're applying for asylum. Now, Secretary, you know, the press secretary was very, you know, adamant about it. They're still going to work to be ready for the day when Title 42 is no longer in place. But there are people within the Biden administration that breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief that they're not having to process 1 million people right now. Putting aside for a moment the important aspect of that is that's one million people that are probably in jeopardy, life and live and, and liberty in the countries that they are. So this is a supremely complicated moral and legal issue about Title 42. How did our Supreme Court handle it? The way they always handle it. They make policy by delay. They say they don't make policy by delay. In fact, Gorsuch, who's the only one that wrote an opinion in the five to four decision, keeping uh, Title 42 in place, requiring Biden to have these people remain in place outside of the country during asylum application process. Gorsuch said in his, um, he's the only one to write an opinion, where he joined the three liberals, the three progressives on the Supreme Court, Kagan, uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, and Sotomayor, he wrote, we are a court of law. We're not policymakers of last resort. Uh, that's interesting for Gorsuch to say that, because if you could put a, a spin on every, if you could put a comment about the Supreme Court this last term, it was that they were policymakers. And they did it in various ways, choosing which cases to take and the timing of those cases, whether to use the shadow docket, which frankly, in the 50 years prior to this past term, the shadow docket had been used, if you added it all up, it had been used less than in this term. Um, you know, in all the years prior, in this term, completely. So 
They do it by shadow docket. They do it by timing. They do it by whether they're going to take the case on full briefing. They do it on whether they're going to grant the stay or not. They do it on whether the circuit court, the, the judge over the circuit, the justice over the circuit, is going to grant the stay or refer it back. And there's time that goes by, weeks, months, six months, eight months, nine months. The Dobbs decision on abortion, let's get to it in 10 months. We don't care what happens to the people in that period of time. In immigration, we'll get to it in February. I actually think it's closer to March. We'll get to it in March on full briefing because we want to see full briefing. But that's a policy that the Supreme Court has made by doing it in, in, the, in, in doing timing. So for Gorsuch to gaslight America and say, don't look to us to be policymakers of last resort, because he thinks that since COVID is over, that doesn't mean that there's not a crisis at the border, one of these borders, and that the, the Biden administration shouldn't be able to use or not use um, Title 42 to fix a crisis at the border related to immigration under the guise of a public health concern. But I think, you know, it is just ballsy for this, for, for Gorsuch especially, to come out and say, don't look to us to make policy, when that's all that they have done over the last year. And I'll do with you, we'll do a Supreme Court roundup, you know, in the new year um, about where we are so far, where, where it's going to be until their next term um, and the developments there. But, but that, I thought, was the most striking aspect of the decision. But I want to make clear, I'm not sure the Biden administration is that upset that they don't have to deal with one million people at the border and making decisions about remain in place or not. They'll fix this problem. But it's got to be what you laid out. It has to be a part of a humane, dignified immigration policy, one that my great-grandparents came through and others came through who are now amazing patriots for America. Why do we want people to live in inhumane conditions, in the shadows, doing the dirty work for America, but don't have a place in America legally? I would only slightly disagree with you in the sense that I think about six months ago, the Biden administration given all the chaos that Trump's created with these policies, would be in a position where they did not want uh, drastic change to occur. Although now that they've you know, implemented their own policies, their own procedures, um, the Biden administration wants to take on big challenges and they want to do things right. They want to do things their way. And there's a lot of data too behind Title 42 um, and the fact that it causes actually a great deal of, of recidivism because of the fact that it doesn't have some of the tools that deportation does as well. And the way Title 42 has been implemented defectively by Trump. But I, I hear your point there. But ultimately, too, what it comes down to is, and to be very clear to all of our listeners and viewers out there, Title 42 is a law that Trump didn't pass the law. Title 42 has existed for close to 100 years or so, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, but just say about approximately 100 years. It was invoked in these circumstances to then be transplanted to further Trump's immigration policy via an executive order. And going back to the point that I raised earlier, the Supreme Court has always held recently, not as always held, the right, let me be clear, the right-wing extremists on the Supreme Court have always tried to cite this major questions doctrine as a way to stop executives, particularly Democrats when they're in office, from implementing policies that they want to implement, saying that Congress has to specifically act on an area, except when it's an area that the Supreme Court 
disagrees with or feels a certain way about. Then the major questions doctrine, like all of their views when they claim they're strict constructionists on the Constitution, except when it comes to the Second Amendment, we'll take out the words well-regulated and militia. We won't read those words. And so it goes to all of these views that the right-wing extreme court just picks and chooses how it wants to make these decisions and then gaslights you to Popak's point by basically saying, oh, no, no, we're strict constructionist here. Oh, you know, no, no, we're going to look at history here. Oh, we're going to do this here. And and there's absolutely, and it basically, it is policy and it is agenda-driven. Speaking about agenda-driven, let's talk briefly about this MAGA extremist fraud, George Santos, that I want to pick your brain on what you're looking forward to in 2023, Popak. But we can't not talk about George Santos. I mean, I'd I'd like to not, but you're right, we can't. (laughs) I mean, okay, he's, he's lied about everything, like everything, the most egregious things, too. I mean, he's let, let's talk about it. he's lied about going to Baruch College. He's lied about um, where he's worked. He, he lied. He, he never worked at Citigroup. He's never worked at Goldman Sachs. He lied about the charity that he claimed existed, which, which doesn't exist. He claimed that his mom died on 9-11. He claimed that his mom survived 9-11. He claimed that his mom and dad survived 9-11. He claimed that four employees died of his died in the Pulse nightclub shooting. He claims that he's Jewish. Uh, He claims that his parents, that his grandparents were Holocaust survivors. He claimed his last name was like Zabrowski. Uh, I mean, like that they were from Ukraine. That they were from Ukraine. He he lies about it. And we talked about this on the Midas Touch podcast. You know, the third congressional district in Long Island has a very large Jewish population. That's why he claims to be Jewish, and also the, the memories of 9-11 resonate in the hearts of people who are across the country uh, and, and mostly across the world, um, and specifically, like, he's around my age. I mean, I remember being in my homeroom class when the planes hit the towers and having to hear the names of parents being, uh, or, or students' names being called over the loudspeakers. They can go into the principal's office to see how their parents were doing. And so he lies about all of these. He lied that he had a brain tumor that he survived. But more specifically, though, as it relates to the criminal investigation, that's what we talk about here on Legal AF. It's his lies relating to disclosures that were made on his congressional forms. And not just the lies, but is he basically a straw man getting all of this money to get around campaign finance? Because he had no money, no money. You know, he was doing crowdfunding for, he did a GoFundMe, you know, for like himself and for for his mom, you know, right before he ran. And his last congressional disclosure, when he ran and lost, he claimed he was making $50,000 a year. And all of a sudden, this time, he's now making millions of dollars. He's loaning his campaign $700,000. $700, he's got all these kind of shady connections to through people who have donated to him, who are related to Russian oligarchs. And I'm not saying that's necessarily the connection here. He's got a relationship with a company that was a $17 million Ponzi scheme that was uh, filed on by the SEC and I think went out of business right before 2021. And he's using like the same accountant there. And there's like a weird office address in Florida. The real, the criminal issue here is the money. How do you get the money? Are, the, are, are his disclosures accurate? Who's funding this fraud? And then obviously the rest. 
podcast won't let me record. It keeps shutting off. It's really weird. Anyway, I'm asking Ben right now for a New Year's legal AF. Um, if Biden should call in ICC inspectors. Cited briefing schedule ordered by the Supreme Court. And the MAGA extremist fraud George Santos not going to be having a great 2023, but Santos may just claim 2023 is actually 2018. Um, here's the headline. Federal prosecutors open investigation into representative-elect George Santos over a congressional campaign. Expect us to believe it. He's under criminal investigation from essentially everyone now, federal, <laughs> state, and local prosecutors. And a complete and utter fraud, utterly humiliating. Did you mention the Brazilian authorities are also looking for him for fraud? Is he Brazilian? Then, uh-huh. that is the state of MAGA Republicans today. Sadly, what can we expect in twenty twenty three? We've got Special Counsel Jack Smith's criminal investigation of Trump. Mm. We've got New York Attorney General Letitia James civil fraud lawsuit. And which would shut down the Trump organization oh, from doing good. business in look New York. That kids. trial oh. is set to start in October oh. of 2023. The Manhattan DA's criminal investigation of Donald Trump himself is now ongoing after the Trump organization was convicted of 17 felony counts. Fulton County District Attorney Bonnie Willis's criminal investigation of 2020 election interference in Georgia heats up, and there will be a report and indictments there. E. Jean Carroll's civil rape and defamation case against Donald Trump will go to trial in 2023. So, Popak, 2022 was a year where the wheels of justice turned in the right direction. 2023, I believe, will be the year of accountability. I'm calling it now. We're only a few hours away from the New Year's here in the United States. If you are watching this internationally and it's already 23, Happy New Year's to you. Happy New Year's Eve to those watching it and counting down the final hours until the new year. I am so glad we are spending this together with all the legal A efforts. Popak, how are you? I'm doing great. Happy New Year to you and everybody that follows us and subscribes. And and let me let me tell you, only half jokingly, I thought you and I and Legal AF would be out of business by twenty twenty three. When we first started this show, when we talked about what are we going to talk about and the content that we're going to talk about, I thought, all right, Look, let's try it. Let's see how much is out there at the intersection of law and politics for you and I to talk about. Maybe we'll run this for a couple of years. Boy, was I wrong. 2023 is shaping up to be double or triple the amount of things that are 
monumental that you and I have to break down and cover along with Karen Friedman and Niffalo. And, um, yeah, the show's not going anywhere because the, um, the goal of the show to explain and break it down in layman's terms what's happening at the important intersection of law and politics is not going anywhere. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to 2023 with you, my, my co-anchor and host. Well, and here's the thing, too, for everybody watching this. When Popak and I started this back in 2020, and we would do these live uh, broadcasts or live streams, we would have maybe 50 people, 25 people at first, 50 people, and a lot of them would be friends and family watching. Um, but the overall point of, of, of now seeing that we have, you know, thousands and thousands of people watching this is the fact that anybody watching this at home, anybody watching this on your phone, wherever you're watching this right now, you have the ability to make a difference. And you did make a difference because none of this is possible without you. None of this is possible without the legal AF community. We built this together and you are the most important part of helping us to build this and you are a major part of that. So I just want to say thank you to everybody watching this at home. We are so thankful for you, for all of you, wherever you're watching this. All right, let's get into it. Donald Trump's full tax returns are released. Popak, <laughs> we had the two executive summaries that were released that we talked about in last week's edition, but now we have the full tax returns, the actual raw data where we could see things like charitable, you know, ch claims of monies that went to charity. So when Donald Trump says in 2020 that he donated his salary to charity, we see a big donut hole. We see zero in 2020. So we absolutely know that he's lying there. I mean, when Donald Trump claims in the various press conferences that he gave and um, leading up to the 2020 election, he said, he paid millions of dollars in, in taxes. Um, well, not in the United States of America. He didn't. Um, if you look at all of those five years and you kind of net it out, he actually received money from the government, a $3 million tax refund. He'd pay like $0 in 2020 and received a refund. In other years, he, got, he paid $750 in taxes. He never paid more than 4% uh, of his income in taxes, but that was ultimately you know, uh, eliminated by the fact that he got a $5 million refund. But then I say, well, you know, at least he wasn't paying that in America because we see all of these foreign entanglements. I mean, he literally had a Chinese bank account. We see that. He claimed that he shut that down in 2015 and that he was thinking about doing business in 2013. Those were his public statements that he made. But he paid $200,000 in taxes to the Chinese government more money than he paid to the United States government. In that year, he paid $750 to the U.S. government. I think it was 2017 when he paid $200,000 to the Chinese government. Um, and so you start seeing all of these things. And when you actually look at the raw data itself, I mean, shows a lot of criminality. I mean, Popak, he took a deduction from the payoff to Stormy Daniels um, that was routed through Michael Cohen. He, he took that as a deduction. So a lot, you know, look, obviously it shows that he's a liar. Obviously it shows that he's a grifter. Obviously it shows these foreign conflicts. But what do you think the Manhattan District Attorney is thinking right now? Well, let's go. Yeah, I'm going to back my way into that um, for that really good explanation. Let's talk about what the criminality could be.
in the tax returns. First of all, he used and abused a technique of setting up his companies into sole proprietorships and using what's called Schedule C in his 1040 tax return. He had, 20, he had a total of 65 sole proprietorships, which basically, I'll be honest with you, are used for very, usually for very small companies, not ones that have 1,000 page returns, tax returns. The reason he did that is that there is a liberal um, use in the Schedule C of expenses against what's supposed to be income and revenue for that particular business that is listed as a sole proprietorship. Except in 26 of Donald Trump's uh, sole proprietorships over that five-year period through which we got our hands on the tax return, each one of those 26 showed zero, back to your donut, zero in income, but huge expenses, meaning he could take his expenses into the tens of millions of dollars and offset that against income, dividends, trust account, trust, uh, trust income, in other parts of his return. So when you net all of that out, those 26 companies with zero in revenue and huge expenses and tax losses, he took, like a magician, a criminal magician, he took $46 million worth of adjusted uh, gross income, $46 million, and he made it a refund of $2.1 million. So he eliminated completely all of his income, $46 million. And he ended up with a refund of 2.1 collectively for those five years. Now, um, his total income was 152 million for those five years, but his adjusted gross income, after all those expenses were applied, was was negative 53 million. He made over <laughs> he made over 150 million dollars disappear by using these Schedule Cs. That is a problem. He had a problem like this apparently in 1984 where a, an, an administrative law judge in the tax area in New York State also pointed out you can't have all these businesses with zero income and all these expenses and offset. So he's on notice that this is an improper methodology. Mazers, the now long discredited uh, accounting firm, auditing firm for Donald Trump for 13 years, who under penalty of being criminally prosecuted itself by the Manhattan DA's office and looked at by the Attorney General of New York, disclaimed all of their work done for Donald Trump and basically told the world, you can't rely on a thing that we previously certified because we got that information from Donald Trump and the Trump Organization and we find it now inherently unreliable. It is Mazers who is at the bottom of every tax return. Um, in fact, there's no signatures for Donald Trump or Melania. It's just Mazers with a tax preparer. Then you've got that, that whole category of bogus charitable deductions, potentially bogus charitable deductions, that aren't backed by any um, uh, chits or invoices or receipts. And those are in the tens and uh, tens of billions of dollars. Um, you also have the impact on his tax returns of his own tax policy. The big tax change in 2017 um, led to him being able to avoid the alternate, alternate minimum tax, the AMT, which saved him again millions of dollars, which is exactly what the House Ways and Means Committee was very concerned about, that the president, who alone can impact his own tax bill, passes laws that benefit him. Um, and so we saw that in the tax returns. The criminality is going to go to following the money now that the IRS, the U.S. 
attorney's offices and prosecutors now have access to these returns and they see these bank accounts in China and Azerbaijan and in other places and try to figure out if there's any money laundering going on here. Speaking of money laundering, we focused, and I did this in my hot take on the matter, we focused on the $200,000 in Chinese taxes he paid the same year that he and Melania paid $750 total to the, uh, to the U.S. But there's also this $15 million transaction with a high-ranking elite of the, of, uh, and, and connected to the Chinese government who got a below-market penthouse in, the, in America sold to him by Donald Trump. Donald Trump immediately took the entire sale price, $15 million, out of the bank account. So in effect, you've got China giving Donald Trump $15 million by way of a penthouse transaction that gets reported on his tax returns. All of these things are going to be supremely important to prosecutors, some of which has been known to them because the New York Times got a bunch of these tax returns through Mary Trump back in 2020, but many of them did not. And now you're going to see Letitia James, um, the Internal Revenue Service, a new and now emboldened by you know Merrick Garland and by Joe Biden, looking at all of these things for future prosecution. I think Alvin Bragg is going to have a good 2023. I don't know if he planned it this way, but I'll give him credit for it. Because lots of people were very angry at Alvin Bragg when he let the grand jury investigating Donald Trump's financial crimes laugh. Including Karen, including Karen, our co-worker. Now, <laughs> he tries the case against the Trump organization as the test run because a lot of the same witnesses are going to be in the bigger trial against Trump directly if and when that occurs. For example, the Mazur's accountant was a key witness who was called by Trump's lawyers and they tried to cross-examine him and Trump's lawyers did a really horrible job on the cross-exam. So much so that when jurors spoke to the media, or at least one juror who spoke to the media afterwards, they said they hated Trump's lawyers, hated them. <laughs> and they said things too, like Trump's lawyers would do things, like make fun of the guy's voice. He had a high-pitched voice, the accountant. And then in the closing arguments, he would do impressions, Trump's lawyer would do impressions of the accountant's So voice. this is Susan Necklace and her and her colleague? It was her colleague who wow. did um, who did like the impressions it off the of jury. And the jurors And the jurors said, why would you, one, you put on a horrible case, but why would you be so cruel and call into question the accountant's manhood? Like, what in the world were you doing? But going back to Alvin Bragg here, a lot of those witnesses are also going to be witnesses if and when Donald Trump is indicted himself. So Alvin Bragg's got the W, the wind behind his back now after the Trump organization pled uh, or, or was found guilty, rather, of the 17 felony counts. And now when he tries the case, or will, I think will file against Donald Trump directly for a number of those things that you just mentioned, they kind of know the strategy. Also, it's removed this whole phony Teflon Don narrative, oh, right, yeah. that Trump, he, he, he'll always going to win, he's always going to get away with it. No. Yeah. Not only did they lose, but the jury was, like, guilty, like, record time for yeah. all of those 17 counts. It was like, tick, 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 tick. Yeah, it was four hours. They, 
Cy Vance, and, and I, I agree with you about Alvin. I was less strong. You know, Karen was in that office and, and uh, uh, actually thought about running for that office. So she has very well considered strong opinions about that. But in retrospect, if he's a master chess player, which Alvin may be, he got the easy, the easier win with the cooperation of Alan Weisselberg, the longtime CFO, a win that, as you said, led to 17 felony convictions, ones that will now be cited forevermore in court cases. And we'll talk about how how things like Jan 6 and uh, criminal convictions in one court end up being cited in another to support positions or analysis, which is really, really important in a way that I haven't, I hadn't even contemplated as it related to Jan 6. But we'll leave that. We'll put a pin in that for a moment. For Alvin, he's now... 17-0, if you will, against Donald Trump. He knows how to uh, fight the lawyers, and he knows um, their weaknesses, which are, as you described them, not getting, not, not being seen as credible or authentic in front of a jury, or having them see you the same as they see your client. I mean, if you've got a sleazy client that's known for being a misogynist, saying really terrible things out loud, you shouldn't repeat that in doing, you know, at least bring your own credibility to, to help your client prevail. That doesn't seem to have happened here the way you described it. So, but Alvin's got that 17-0 record now, and now with his own people, because look, it's, it's hard. He inherited a case and a prosecution and investigation from his predecessor, Cy Vance. Cy Vance is still around. I mean, the guy's only in his 60s. He's practicing law. You know, he's been kind of public about, I would have prosecuted. I thought the next step when I left office was that Alvin was going to prosecute, uh, given, given all the evidence I'd given him. However, he's his own person. He has to make his own decision. But but let's give that credit. I mean, he is his own person. He did evaluate in his own way with his own experiences as a prosecutor, a lifelong prosecutor, federal and state, the evidence. And he didn't see the case at that moment. And he was getting pressured by the special prosecutors that, that Cy Vance had hired and brought in. I don't want to say they weren't they weren't Alvin's people, but they weren't Alvin's people, and they were pushing. Look, if the only thing that you've been doing for the last two years, having left private practice, is working on this one case, of course you want that one case to be prosecuted. And Alvin had a little bit more of a uh, a sense of perspective, having been the new person into the job, and you know it was gonna it was gonna live or die. The buck stopped with him. Now, as you said, 2023. If if this is his strategy, it could turn out to be brilliant because as you said he put all of the witnesses through their papers already he sees how they're going to perform now with his own people and he's brought in his own group of special prosecutors who know about trump and the trump organization to help him reevaluate things like stormy daniels is that an election uh, election fraud violation or election contribution violation and other things within it so i don't think anybody should be who listens to the show should be surprised if in 2023, Alvin Bragg in the Manhattan DA's office bring a new round of criminal prosecutions against Donald Trump specifically, and these tax returns are only going to help him. Popak, you put a pin in it. I'm taking the pin out of it. Let's go and see how the January 6th committee's reports are now being cited, and not just the reports, but how the deposition transcripts that they released and the way they've been kind of drip, 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 dripping these deposition transcripts has had an incredible impact as well. I just think also reputationally in allowing the public to soar through who are the bad actors, who are the 
criminal actors, who are the phonies, and who are the people who acted reasonably around that time period. Very few heroes other than the law enforcement, the Capitol Police officers, the people who stood against it. You know, I, I don't want to fully say that were there really heroes in the White House on that day. I think there were people who acted um, as they Pat, should have acted. And Pat Cipollone, yeah, Pat Cipollone is becoming the John Dean of, of this investigation. You know, the, the more the transcripts come out through his own and through um, Cassie Hutchinson, the more Pat Cipollone looked like he was the adult. Uh, that stopped a lot. You think what Trump did was crazy? It was going to be even crazier uh, if Pat Cipollone hadn't been in his position. So let's first talk about the federal judge in Washington, D.C., though, who cited the January 6th final report in a recent court order this past week. The judge is John Bates, federal judge, district court judge, appointed by George W. Bush, an insurrectionist named Alex Shepard, tried to file a motion to dismiss, and a change of venue motion, and also wanted to assert a defense called a public authority defense, which basically is kind of like entrapment in a way, a public authority defense, although it's not fully well-defined because very rarely do you have a situation where someone can try to argue that a president told them to lead an insurrection. But the claim of public authority defense is that you believe that you were following lawful orders, that the orders that were given appeared to be lawful, and that you were just acting pursuant to those orders. Um, so here, the federal judge had to analyze whether or not this insurrectionist could assert that defense here, because the insurrectionist said, Donald Trump told me to do it. Donald Trump said that we should, you know, storm or you know, fight like hell. And so I was following his orders on that day. And what uh, Judge John Bates said is, look, let's look at the January 6th committee report. Um, and also let's use our common sense. And when you put those things together, it's apparent that Donald Trump was actually not giving a lawful order when he was saying things like fight like hell and we're going to the Capitol together and I'll be there with you and all of those things that a person who interpreted that would not believe they were following a lawful order, but that they would be obstructing an official proceeding. And so to have yet another federal judge, I mean, we've seen statements by Judge Carter, federal judge in California, Judge Amit Mehta, Judge Sullivan, Judge Beryl Howell. It kind of adds to this list of uh, Judge Amy Berman Jackson. Um, it adds to the list of these judges um, who are very, very, very critical, to say the least, of Donald Trump's conduct. But specifically here, Trump's really running out of any potential judge who may be an ally in Washington, D.C., where the indictments against Trump will be brought. They're not being brought. We've talked about this in other podcasts. Judge Eileen Cannon should never have asserted jurisdiction. The fact that there was a search warrant executed at Mar-a-Lago was the reason why there was a magistrate judge in the Southern District of Florida that had to sign the warrant. But that's why Florida was involved. But any indictment on both Donald Trump's theft of government records, as well as Donald Trump's conduct relating to the insurrection and, and election interference, those will all be in D.C. And even the, even the Republican judges, all of them, whether we're talking about, you know, even a Trump appointee like a Judge Nichols, 
maybe Judge Nichols would be the most sympathetic, but he's not sympathetic to the insurrection. Nichols has made a, I think, a terrible ruling claiming that obstruction of justice, that charge can't be used except in very narrowly circumstances, which we've talked about on prior podcasts, could have very big implications. But on the other charges, like a seditious conspiracy charge, on an insurrection charge, on a trespass charge, on a conspiracy charge, there's not a single federal judge in Washington, D.C., who I think would let Donald Trump off easy here. So I wanted to talk about that piece, about what Judge John Bates did, citing the January 6th report. Popak, I know you wanted to talk about the deposition transcripts and their implications. Let me toss it to you on that. Yeah. Yeah, well, let me let me uh, pick up on a couple of threads that you laid out there. First of all, while we talk a lot about Trump having reshaped or attempted to reshape the federal judiciary, he wasn't that successful. I mean, there's there's courts of appeals that were already conservative, like the 5th, the 11th, that he continued in that direction. Um, but Biden has done a much better job at appointing at the state, at the um, trial level, the federal trial level, and at the federal appeal level. The only place that Donald Trump really, and I'm not saying, I'm not minimizing it, it's important, but the place where he really reshaped is that he got three picks. He was able to get three picks on the on the Supreme Court. In D.C., he's done very little to be able to ideologically shift the judges in his favor. These are not, by and large, in fact, none of them, MAGA Republicans that he appointed. Carl Nichols is not a MAGA Republican. We may not agree with his decision, but I knew his, I know him by reputation and where he worked at Williams and Connolly before he became uh, a judge. He is, he is a Republican, but he's not ideologically MAGA. And there aren't really aren't any in the DC circuit or in the DC circuit court of appeals that fit that bill. So even though you'll hit a Trump appointed, maybe one, maybe one on the court of appeals, uh, uh, the guy that uh, Katzis that had been in the Trump administration uh, in the White House Counsel's office, who seems to uh, view his role as being MAGA. But other than that, so you're right. When the prosecutions finally happen, they'll happen in Washington with a very unsympathetic uh, bench. One that, as you've noted, is already starting to form opinions based on the 400 cases of the Jan 6 that are going that are being filtered through their courtrooms. Beryl Howell can't help but have predispositions now about Trump, some of which we've seen in her rulings against Rudy Giuliani and others, when she's not also running the grand jury process and hearing all the secret testimony about attorney-client communications that you and I don't even know about. So the good part about the insurrections being put through our justice system is it's having an impact on the judges who are asked to handle. One of them is going to get picked to be the Donald Trump judge for one or more prosecutions coming out of the four or five grand juries that Jack Smith is running in Washington. Now, the part that I wanted to talk about is that, and we see it in the ruling by Judge Bates against Alexander Shepard, which is interesting for a couple of reasons. One, Judge Bates did not buy the argument that obstruction of justice can't be used against the Jan 6 defendant because unless you find evidence that he literally walked in and tore up the electoral votes, which is sort of Carl Nichols' position. That is, a, that is an argument that, that may prevail at the D.C. Court of Appeals 
judges like Judge Bates are doing their own analysis, and once again, like every other judge in the D.C. Circuit, has ruled that obstruction of, the obstruction of official proceeding is an appropriate count to go against the Jan. 6 defendants because their object of their of their acts of their obstruction obstructionist acts was to stop the electoral count, which they did for a period of time, and to stop the certification. So he that's the first thing he dispatched. Then on the uh, on the uh, fight does fight like hell. You got to go down and march to the Capitol. Was that the license? The, the, the legitimacy, the license by a government official to a person like Alexander Shepard and the others to say, hey, I'm allowed, I got a, I got a free pass today. I'm allowed to go storm the Capitol and confront Capitol Police um, and interfere with the election process because my president, who's a government official, told me to. And the judge, after going through the analysis, said, look, I, I get your argument. It's sometimes called entrapment by estoppel, meaning the government is stopped from changing their position telling you at one point you can do something and then taking away that privilege or right and then leave you in the middle of being criminally prosecuted. And the examples that they used are like, for instance, when there was the, um, the sit-in, the Occupy Wall Street in New York, um, which people forget, where for like the whole summer, a park across from Wall Street was occupied by people objecting to you know, financial services in Wall Street. Mayor Bloomberg gave out an edict, which is cited in this court's opinion, that said, as long as they're peaceful protesters, we're going to let them express themselves. And people said, based on that, I stayed in the park. So when they were criminally prosecuted, some of them for staying too long, they pointed to Bloomberg's uh, comment and said, isn't that an expressed or implicit um, permission for me to do it? I was told if I'm peaceful, I can stay, and now I'm being arrested. So that's where it really comes up. But Donald Trump saying we're going to fight like hell, go walk on the Capitol, is not the equivalent of, here, you have the permission today only. I'm the president. Burst through the doors, confront the police, be violent about it, and try to stop the electoral vote. And, and for that, Judge Bates was not buying that that defense applies. What I liked about it is in the, the footnote 7 that you just talked about, and maybe we'll be able to put it up for the show. In footnote 7, um, this is where Jan 6 comes into the real world in a courtroom. Um, he said that the... Um, President Trump, the person, Mr. Uh, uh, Shepard, that you're relying on for the instruction that you said you were given to allow you to march to the Capitol and burst through the doors and, and attack the Capitol, that guy, that guy, uh, according to Jan 6, committed four crimes. And one of the crimes was fomenting the violence that happened by knowing people were armed and dangerous in the crowd and then turning them and pointing them to Capitol, another branch of government, and telling them to go basically attack and yelling out the words attack, if you will. He says, that guy, what you say is your permission, is actually a crime that was being committed by the President of the United States, so says the Jan 6 Committee. So here's where I had a moment, like my own personal rev re uh, revelation. I think I underestimated, and I talked to you about this pre-show, I underestimated the impact that the, uh, not, not so much the criminal referrals, I thought that was important. Um, I may have referred to it occasionally at ceremonial, but because I'm less worried about the criminal referrals in terms of the Department of Justice, but the criminal referrals and the release of the 1,000 transcripts of witness testimony, which is being done about 100 a day until they get to the full 1,000 before Jan 3, I underestimated the impact that that would have both in the courtrooms around America, like we just saw, 
with uh, with uh, Judge Bates, and in the, not only public perception, in 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 not only saying the emperor has no clothes, but ripping away the clothes of all these elected officials like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Mo Brooks and Matt Gates and and the and the Trump kids and Donald Trump and everybody in, around the White House, including Meadows and and Giuliani and Powell. All those people, people don't have to take it. They don't have to take the Department of Justice's word for it as it comes out case by case when they finally prosecute, because the Department of Justice right now is bound and gagged. A, they'll never release transcripts before a trial. They just can't. They can't under the law. Two, the grand jury process is completely secret. And three, Merrick Garland runs a leak-proof uh, uh, shop. You, there, there's no leaks. There's no press conferences. There's no... In, you know, other administrations, other Department of Justice, you would hear a lot more information. We're not hearing anything. So the, the Jan 6 dumps all of these transcripts for everybody, you, me, pundits, person, regular people, anybody that wants to pull the transcript can go read exactly what Don Jr. said, can go read, you know, and now there's catalyzation, right? There's this person in the communications office for Donald Trump attacking that person in the communications office for Donald Trump. And then you, you get to read four days of Cassidy Hutchinson, not just you and me interpreting it for you. That is having a tremendous impact on the future, reputationally, of all of these people. If Donald Trump was the giant boogeyman uh, under the bed, is he going to run again? Oh, my God. Now, he's so shrunk now to that you could drown him in a bathtub. I mean, he is tiny. He's a tiny little, you know, little tyrant. And he gets shrunk more and more each day with more and more revelations about him. But the others do too. They've all taken major hits. You know, McEnany, whoever this former press secretary that's on Fox News, terrible information came out in the transcripts about her. Don Jr., Eric, Ivanka, all of them will have will be scarred indelibly by the Jan 6 committee's release of these transcripts. That's doing a public service for the history of this country that I underestimated when it first started to happen. You know, and I think those, to, to your point, those depositions will be cited now in court cases. Right. Those depositions will be cited now in just news articles in perpetuity. And those, and those uh, depositions are out there in just perpetuity in general, reputationally. And, you know, you have the people who invoke the fifth, you got your Roger Stones and your Mike Flynn's and your Nick Fuentes's and your Charlie Kirk's and your Kelly Ward's, people who will uh, forever be in the chapter under traitor with Donald Trump and the MAGA extremists. You've got other chapters for cowards. Um, and you've got chapters for people who stepped up and did the right thing where you'll see where you'll see people like Cassidy Hutchinson and Pat Cipollone. And, you know, at the beginning of this segment, though, what I was saying is, is that they followed the law and by following the law, they're courageous. But when the base level is, did you follow the law and that that is applauded, we should take a step back for a second, though and reflect how far into the depths of depravity the Trump administration and MAGA has brought us, where base level doing what you were supposed to do, you know, former Vice President Pence engaged in the ministerial task of counting versus uh, allowing Donald Trump to lead a procession of National Guardsmen 
to overthrow and declare himself the emperor. I mean, you know, it's like, yes, Pence did the right thing. Um, but you're supposed to do the right thing. You're supposed to follow the law. And we don't just expect our leaders to do base level things. We expect and hope that our leaders are going to fight for us, move democracy forward. That's why it's a very, very, very dark chapter in our nation's history, the darkest, perhaps, or one let, of the darkest. I let me make one, two, more, two more observations. And it's going to take a while for all of this to filter through. 1,000 transcripts, you got to figure about 10 hours per, if not more. You're talking about 10,000 hours or more of testimony. You know, even if we just, even if we speed it up to two times and listen to it really fast and read it really fast, it's going to take a while for you and I and others to kind of figure it all out. But here's two little nuggets that I thought were very interesting that I hadn't heard before. I want to see if you heard it. First of all, we, I, I did a hot take, and you and I have talked about the struggle between the Department of Justice and the Jan 6 Committee all along, Jan 6 Committee holding tight onto their transcripts and their witness testimony. I thought at the time it was only because they wanted it to be really, really impactful and not share with the Department of Justice because they hadn't yet made their own conclusions. But that's not it. Apparently, on, and for a number of witnesses, the Jan 6 committee agreed not to make a Department of Justice referral or send the transcript right to the Department of Justice in return for the witness testifying in front of the Jan 6 committee, knowing that at the end they would. But they made promises in order to get certain people to testify, and I'm not sure which ones they are yet, but this came out already in reporting, that they made promises that don't worry. If you talk to us right now, under oath or otherwise, we will not immediately turn the transcript over to the Department of Justice, you know, like directly. And so they got a number of people to testify based on that promise, and then they felt like they had a, they were bound by that promise, and they didn't turn it over to the Department of Justice. So that was very interesting. And also, blasts from the past, Dan Quayle, of all things, former vice president under, under George W. Bush, making not one but a series of phone calls to Mike Pence and others guiding them on what to do in this moment. First of all, I didn't even know Dan Quayle was still around, let alone that he's respected in Republican circles pre-Trump, right? This is when Republicans were a real party. And you got, you got Dan Quayle guiding Mike Pence about what he should or shouldn't do. Fascinating. People from history coming coming back, um, I, I, and I'm sure we're going to see more of that as we get through 10,000 hours of testimony. We'll keep reading it here, and we'll keep sharing it with all the legal efforts and Midas Mighty out there. I want to talk about the Supreme Court's shadow docket uh, used to block uh, President Biden from implementing his own immigration policy and basically forcing Biden to continue enforcing uh, Title 42 expulsion of asylum seekers here in the United States of America, uh, expelling these asylum seekers back to places where they will be tortured or killed. To be very clear, Title 42 is actually not an immigration law, right? Title 42 is a health law. It involves powers given to the Surgeon General and the CDC to stop the transmission of communicable diseases that was invoked by the Trump administration as part of a xenophobic uh, immigration policy because we have Title VIII to deal with deportation, but that has a process where you still have to allow asylum seekers to go through and make their petition for asylum, but by claiming a health emergency and invoking Title 42, 
you can avoid that from happening. Now, Title 42 also only deals with certain countries and certain groups and where it could be expelled. It's very, very, very uh, flawed. Um, and, and But nonetheless, Biden was criticized for using it um, because to all of a sudden stop using something that was evoked by the Trump administration could cause a great degree of chaos. But finally, in April, Biden's like, look, I want to go back to Title VIII deportation. We want to go back to have our own policy. If just saying we're not going to use Title 42 doesn't mean we're not going to enforce a border policy. I'm the commander in chief. The justifications for Title 42 regarding the pandemic no longer hold. So I'm going to pursue my own policy. Then uh, he was basically sued or these Republican states intervened. The case was then labeled Arizona versus Mayorkas. Um, and the Republican states led by Arizona and, and, and a bunch of other Republican states said, no, you have to keep enforcing Title 42. <laughs> Title 42 is essentially an executive order, right, by this, you know, by the CDC and by the Trump administration. And Biden's like, I'm going to do my own policy. And so this was litigated before the Washington, D.C. federal court before Judge Sullivan. It was then litigated uh, later on in front of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, um, both saying Biden's, it's Biden's policy. Like, like, but, and, and the states, you shouldn't even have the ability to intervene. You don't have jurisdiction to even intervene here. Then it went up to the United States Supreme Court through an emergency petition filed by the states. Um, you had uh, the Chief Judge Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, granted a temporary um, stay for briefing to take place. And then in a five to four decision, the shadow docket, the Supreme Court, not with oral argument, basically said, look, we're going to intervene. We don't care what the district court says. We don't care what the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals says. We are going to block Biden from implementing his own immigration policy until we have oral argument, which we're going to set for February. So until February and we hear the argument, we are stopping Biden from not utilizing Title 42 anymore. And the Supreme Court tries to be cute by half in their order and said, we're not telling him that he can't do the immigration policy. He just simply can't not use Title 42 anymore, which is constraining him. If you're forcing him to use Title 42, you're constraining his immigration policy. Now, there may be differences of opinion. There may be differences of views about should he use Title 42? Should he use Title 8? He's the commander in chief, though. And so for the judiciary to use their shadow docket in this way, to me, is incredibly problematic. And Popeye, it's also incredibly hypocritical. Because in all the other areas where the executive has actually attempted to invoke their executive authority, where Biden said, look, because of the COVID pandemic, when the COVID pandemic was raging, here's my view about evictions. I want to stop evictions right now. What did the Supreme Court basically say? And what did all the right wing courts say? They basically said, you can't use COVID and health policy as a pretext to reach into these areas of eviction. Same thing that we're seeing with what right-wing Supreme Courts are doing, and this is going to work its way up to the Supreme Court on student loans. You know, the Biden administration said, look, because of the global pandemic, this is an emergency under the, you know, under the 2003 HEROES Act. Therefore, um, 
we're going to utilize our policy. The Department of Education is going to forgive loans because we are in an emergency situation. And they're right-wing courts. And I think the Supreme Court ultimately, unfortunately, may agree with these right-wing courts or, you know, say, you don't have an authority that it violates the Administrative Procedures Act. And you can't do that. Meanwhile, this archaic law from like almost 100 years ago, Title 42, is now being thrust and forced upon a commander in chief to engage in a policy that the commander in chief says, no, we, we, we want asylum seekers to be able to pursue asylum, and I want to pursue my own border policy. I'll make this one point and then toss it to you, though, Popak here, which is I think it is important that we have comprehensive immigration reform here. Um, I don't think you can just basically say we need totally open borders. I, I don't agree with that. I, I don't think that. However, there has to be compassion. There has to be a reflection that we in the United States of America, when people are legitimately seeking asylum, to send people back to get killed or tortured is not what our country is about. I think it's important to reflect that we are a country of immigrants and that all of our stories, all of our histories, the people who are so out against immigrants in the most xenophobic ways, mostly all of them have come from immigrants. They're one or two generations, you know, or two generations removed from that. So we need a comprehensive immigration policy, which is what Democrats and Biden and people always want to do. And we could achieve that, but for the fact, but for the fact that MAGA Republicans like to do the performative things where they kidnap people and human traffic them and 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 send them and ship them to you know the vice president's house and you know and and engage in those xenophobic gestures and performative gestures like let's build the wall okay well someone could dig under the wall they could climb the wall they could walk through the wall you know they want the performative BS so that they could uh, let people hate and let let people blame others for their problems rather than solve problems and I would like a comprehensive policy that's compassionate that's respectful and that does recognize we do need borders here in the United States of America, but reflects that we are a country of immigrants. Um, so anyway, I'm sharing a little bit of my politics there, but I, I want to toss it to you briefly there, Popak. What do you think? All right, immigration policy is personal to me. I lived in Miami for 20 years. I have plenty of friends that were both legal and illegally in this country. Um, we need, as you, I'll pick up where you left off, we need a comprehensive, humane Immigration policy, unfortunately, it has eluded administration after administration, both Republican and Democrat, whether we have the House and the Senate or we don't. Um, sometimes there's political will for this. Usually there is not on the Republican side. Um, it's personal to me. My great-grandfather came here in 1900 <clears throat> through the then-existing immigration policy through Ellis Island. My grandfather came here in 1908 through, through Ellis Island. I have loved ones that won the green card lottery, um, which is one aspect of a humane policy if it's properly applied. And there's no greater United States citizen or patriot than that person who came through the, the green card lottery. Title 42 is controversial. It's even controversial within the Biden administration, to be perfectly frank. They were fighting for everything you laid out about the commander-in-chief and Joe Biden on one hand, <clears throat> but they weren't fighting that hard on the other hand because of the amount, the sheer volume of people who are yearning to breathe free and enter this country, which I completely 
that's who's affected by it. Pardon me. <clears throat> the one thing about Title 42 that people need to understand, it was passed by Trump as a public health issue to use COVID policy to make people remain in place while they applied for asylum. Think about that. Most people that are applying for asylum, political or otherwise, are doing it because their life is in jeopardy because of the political circumstance or where they where they are in the socioeconomic group of those countries that I just outlined. We used to let them in, stay at a detention center or stay in America safely while they applied for asylum. If they got asylum, they stayed. If they didn't get asylum, then they were returned to their home country, but the benefit of the doubt was given to them. Under the Trump era policy, which frankly Biden continued to use, he, he could have gotten, he could have challenged it earlier, but he didn't. More than 2 million asylum seekers stayed in their countries rather than come through to the United States during this time period, both under Biden and under Trump. Just to show you the sheer volume of people that are impacted by Title 42, 2 million remained in place. Why I say that Biden sort of was a little bit playing both sides is because even though they challenged the, um, the decision to, to eliminate Title 42, they didn't also move to the Supreme Court to get an injunction in their favor so that they, can, they could continue to uh, drop it and bring all these people in. Frankly, I'm not sure Mayorkas and by the Biden administration is completely ready for 2 million or 1 million people to, to be housed, protected, and all on this side of the border while they're applying for asylum. Now, Secretary, you know, the press secretary was very, you know, adamant about it. They're still going to work to be ready for the day when Title 42 is no longer in place. But there are people within the Biden administration that breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief that they're not having to process 1 million people right now. Putting aside for a moment the important aspect of that is that's one million people that are probably in jeopardy, life and live and, and liberty in the countries that they are. So this is a supremely complicated moral and legal issue about Title 42. How did our Supreme Court handle it? The way they always handle it. They make policy by delay. They say they don't make policy by delay. In fact, Gorsuch, who's the only one that wrote an opinion in the five to four decision, keeping uh, Title 42 in place, requiring Biden to have these people remain in place outside of the country during asylum application process. Gorsuch said in his, um, he's the only one to write an opinion, where he joined the three liberals, the three progressives on the Supreme Court, Kagan, uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, and Sotomayor, he wrote, we are a court of law. We're not policymakers of last resort. Uh, that's interesting for Gorsuch to say that, because if you could put a, a spin on every, if you could put a comment about the Supreme Court this last term, it was that they were policymakers. And they did it in various ways, choosing which cases to take and the timing of those cases, whether to use the shadow docket, which frankly, in the 50 years prior to this past term, the shadow docket had been used, if you added it all up, it had been used less than in this term. Um, you know, in all the years prior, in this term, completely. So they do it by shadow docket. They do it by timing. They do it by whether they're going to take the case on full briefing. They do it on whether they're going to grant the stay or not. They do it on whether the 
circuit court, the, the judge over the circuit, the justice over the circuit is going to grant the stay or refer it back. And there's time that goes by, weeks, months, six months, eight months, nine months. The Dobbs decision on abortion, let's get to it in 10 months. We don't care what happens to the people in that period of time. In immigration, we'll get to it in February. I actually think it's closer to March. We'll get to it in March on full briefing because we want to see full briefing. But that's a policy that the Supreme Court has made by doing it in, in, the, in, in doing timing. So for Gorsuch to gaslight America and say, don't look to us to be policymakers of last resort, because he thinks that since COVID is over, that doesn't mean that there's not a crisis at the border, one of these borders, and that the, the Biden administration shouldn't be able to use or not use um, Title 42 to fix a crisis at the border related to immigration under the guise of a public health concern. But I think, you know, it is just ballsy for this, for, for Gorsuch especially, to come out and say, don't look to us to make policy, when that's all that they have done over the last year. And I'll do with you, we'll do a Supreme Court roundup, you know, in the new year um, about where we are so far, where, where it's going to be until their next term um, and the developments there. But, but that, I thought, was the most striking aspect of the decision. But I want to make clear, I'm not sure the Biden administration is that upset that they don't have to deal with one million people at the border and making decisions about remain in place or not. They'll fix this problem. But it's got to be what you laid out. It has to be a part of a humane, dignified immigration policy, one that my great-grandparents came through and others came through who are now amazing patriots for America. Why do we want people to live in inhumane conditions, in the shadows, doing the dirty work for America, but don't have a place in America legally? I would only slightly disagree with you in the sense that I think about six months ago, the Biden administration given all the chaos that Trump's created with these policies, would be in a position where they did not want uh, drastic change to occur. Although now that they've you know, implemented their own policies, their own procedures, um, the Biden administration wants to take on big challenges and they want to do things right. They want to do things their way. And there's a lot of data too behind Title 42 um, and the fact that it causes actually a great deal of, of recidivism because of the fact that it doesn't have some of the tools that deportation does as well. And the way Title 42 has been implemented defectively by Trump. But I, I hear your point there. But ultimately, too, what it comes down to is, and to be very clear to all of our listeners and viewers out there, Title 42 is a law that Trump didn't pass the law. Title 42 has existed for close to 100 years or so, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, but just say about approximately 100 years. It was invoked in these circumstances to then be transplanted to further Trump's immigration policy via an executive order. And going back to the point that I raised earlier, the Supreme Court has always held recently, not as always held, the right, let me be clear, the right-wing extremists on the Supreme Court have always tried to cite this major questions doctrine as a way to stop executives, particularly Democrats when they're in office, from implementing policies that they want to implement, saying that Congress has to specifically act on an area, except when it's an area that the Supreme Court disagrees with or feels a certain way about then the major questions doctrine 
like all of their views when they claim they're strict constructionists on the Constitution, except when it comes to the Second Amendment, we'll take out the words well-regulated and militia. We won't read those words. And so it goes to all of these views at the right-wing extreme court, just picks and chooses how it wants to make these decisions, and then gaslights you to Popak's point by basically saying, oh, no, no, we're strict constructionists here. Oh, you know, no, no, we're going to look at history here. Oh, we're going to do this here. And and there's absolutely, and it basically, it is policy and it is agenda-driven. Speaking about agenda-driven, let's talk briefly about this MAGA extremist fraud, George Santos, that I want to pick your brain on what you're looking forward to in 2023, Popak. But we can't not talk about George Santos. I mean, I'd, I'd like to not, but you're right, we can't. <laughs> I mean, he okay, he's, he's lied about everything, like everything, the most egregious things, too. I mean, he's let, let's talk about it. he's lied about going to Baruch College. He's lied about um, where he's worked. He, he lied. He, he never worked at Citigroup. He's never worked at Goldman Sachs. He lied about the charity that he claimed existed, which, which doesn't exist. He claimed that his mom died on 9-11. He claimed that his mom survived 9-11. He claimed that his mom and dad survived 9-11. He claimed that four employees died of his died oh, right. in the Pulse nightclub shooting. Right, he claims that he's Jewish. Uh, he claims that his parent, that his grandparents were Holocaust survivors. He claimed his last name was like Zabrowski. Uh, I mean, like they the, were, the, that know, they he, were from Ukraine. That they are from Ukraine. He, he lies about it. And we talked about this on the Midas Touch podcast. You know, the third congressional district in Long Island has a very large Jewish population. That's why. He claims to be Jewish, and also the, the memories of 9-11 resonate in the hearts of people who are across the country uh, and, and mostly across the world, um, and specifically, like, he's around my age. I mean, I remember being in my homeroom class when the planes hit the towers and having to hear the names of parents being, uh, or, or students' names being called over the loudspeakers. They can go into the principal's office to see how their parents were doing. And so he lies about all of these. He lied that he had a brain tumor that he survived. But more specifically, though, as it relates to the criminal investigation, that's what we talk about here on Legal AF. It's his lies relating to disclosures that were made on his congressional forms. And not just the lies, but is he basically a straw man getting all of this money to get around campaign finance? Because he had no money, no money. You know, he was doing crowdfunding for, he did a GoFundMe, you know, for like himself and for for his mom, you know, right before he ran. And his last congressional disclosure, when he ran and lost, he claimed he was making $50,000 a year. And all of a sudden, this time, he's now making millions of dollars. He's loaning his campaign $700,000. $700, he's got all these kind of shady connections to through people who have donated to him, who are related to Russian oligarchs. And I'm not saying that's necessarily the connection here. He's got a relationship with a company that was a $17 million Ponzi scheme that was filed on by the SEC and I think went out of business right before 2021. And he's using like the same accountant there. And there's like a weird office address in Florida. The real, the criminal issue here is the money. How do you get the money? Are, the, are, are his disclosures accurate? Who's funding this fraud? And then obviously the rest.